Welcome to In the Public Interest, a podcast from Wilmer Hale. I'm John Walsh. And I'm Brendan McGuire. John and I are partners at Wilmer Hale, an international law firm that works at the intersection of government, technology, and business. In this episode, Brendan is joined by Harvard University's 29th president, Larry Bacow, and our fellow Wilmer Hale partners, Felicia Ellsworth and Seth Waxman. Seth and Felicia worked closely with President Bacow to challenge the Trump administration's controversial directive to ban international students from the U.S. if they took most of their fall 2020 classes online because of the pandemic. We hope you'll enjoy listening to how this case came together really in an instant and the great work done by the legal team. Joining me today are Harvard University President Larry Bacow and Wilmer Hale partners Felicia Ellsworth and Seth Waxman. President Bacow is a lawyer, economist, and author who has served as the 29th president of Harvard since 2018. Over the past year, he has led the university through the COVID pandemic and a variety of related challenges. Felicia is the vice chair of our litigation department, a nationally recognized litigator and appellate advocate, as well as a leader in our Boston office. And finally, Seth is the co-chair of our appellate and Supreme Court litigation practice and previously served as Solicitor General of the United States. This story gained national attention in July of 2020. However, the story goes back to March 13th, 2020. First, a bit of legal background. Generally, a citizen of a foreign country who wishes to enter and study in the United States must obtain a student visa to do so. As the seriousness of COVID gripped the world in March 2020, the U.S. government suspended a rule that students in the U.S. on certain student visas had to attend most classes in person. This allowed universities to focus on student safety and health when making decisions about how to adapt their programs without fear that international students would forfeit their student visas if the universities switched to remote learning. However, on Monday, July 6th, everything changed, both for international students and the U.S. universities they attended. On that day, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, commonly referred to as ICE, issued a directive that barred international students from being physically present in the United States or from returning to the United States from abroad if they plan to take more than three credit hours in online coursework during the fall semester. With many schools across the country, including Harvard, having already decided to offer online only or hybrid learning for the fall semester, thousands of international students still in the US face the prospect of having to return to their home countries or risk imminent removal proceedings. In addition, international students who had gone home during the pandemic suddenly had to negotiate hazardous conditions, travel restrictions, and other obstacles to try to physically return to the US to attend in-person classes in order to maintain their visa status. The response from Harvard to this directive was an immediate and forceful one, which impacted the lives of thousands upon thousands of students and their families. This is the inspiring story of how Harvard and a team of lawyers at Wilmer Hale came together to defend students during a pandemic and the Herculean effort to file a successful lawsuit for those students in a mere 23 hours. And with that, Seth, I will turn it over to you. Thanks, Brendan. And President Bacow, who I will here and after refer to as Larry, thank you so much for joining us for this opportunity to talk about what, at least for us, was quite a rewarding and quick engagement. Larry, let me take you back to March of last year and the early phase of the pandemic. 
As COVID-19 started to surge in Massachusetts, you made the early and then I think somewhat controversial decision to close down the Harvard campus on March 10th. You're now credited with being ahead of the curve in terms of taking swift measures to protect the Harvard community. But how did COVID-19 affect the university in those early days of the pandemic? Well, first, thanks for having me on, Seth. We had been monitoring what was going on in the rest of the world with this virus, then known as the coronavirus, uh, specifically watching what was happening both in China as well as in other countries that seemed to be ahead of us, at least in terms of the way in which they were dealing with this virus. One of the advantages of being president of Harvard is that I have access to our faculty, and that included some of the world's foremost experts on epidemiology, virology, public health, infectious disease. And we had watched the essential doubling of cases in Massachusetts over the previous four or five days. And uh, it just became clear that if we weren't careful, we were going to wind up where Italy was, where China was, where Spain was in dealing with the virus. We knew that we'd be criticized, or I knew that I would be criticized by making the call early. But this was a case where the costs of being wrong were asymmetrical. If we closed down and turned out it wasn't necessary, we would have inconvenienced a lot of people. We would have squandered a lot of resources. If we failed to do it, and our students were on the verge of going home for spring break, and they dispersed and then came back and brought the infection to campus, the cost of being wrong there would be measured in human life. So it actually turned out to be not that difficult to call. Can you talk briefly about the importance of Harvard's international students and their contributions to the classroom, the campus, and the wider community? Well, about a quarter of our students come from someplace else. Uh, that's university-wide. In some schools, it's a much higher percentage. So if you go to the Kennedy School, it's close to 50%. The same is true at the Graduate School of Design and, and elsewhere. We try to recruit the best and the brightest from around the world. And for many of them, it's been their lifelong dream to come to the United States and pursue their education and to do it at Harvard. It's not just our international students. I would also add that a third of our faculty were born someplace else. And we are home to the largest number of international scholars of any other university in the country. So if I have my numbers right, you have about 5,000 international students attending on F-1 visas. Can you talk about, in the early days, what the pandemic meant for them, how it impacted them, and how that impact affected the planning that you were doing for the fall semester? So after we made the decision to send students home, many of our international students could not go home. Uh, they could not travel at that point. We made accommodations for them to stay on campus. So the expectation was that when we resumed instruction in the fall, they would still be here on campus. And we had not at that point in March made the decision to switch all of our teaching to remote instruction. The government had adopted a waiver, basically, which allowed international students who are on F-1 visas to stay in this country during the pandemic, during this national emergency, notwithstanding the fact that classes were not being conducted in most places in person, that many institutions had gone uh, to remote instruction. And so we had relied upon that, and our students had relied upon that also in formulating our plans for the fall. And those students were very much at risk if the government changed its mind, as it ultimately did. So on July 6th, the Monday after the 4th of July, ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, announced 
that all international students on F-1 visas whose fall classes would be completely or largely online would not be able to remain in or return to the United States. So set the scene for us. As I said, it's right after the 4th of July weekend. I don't know where this was in your planning for the fall, but how did you hear about the directive? What went through your mind and what were your immediate concerns? Well, we had literally just announced our plans for the fall. We had just released them and we told our students that while we would have a number of students in residence on campus, all of our instruction was going to be online. We did that because we did not know at that point whether or not it would be safe to teach students in person on campus. And so we had designed a program which was built around the best knowledge that we had at the time about the virus, about how infectious it was. And we were doing our best to keep not just our students safe, but our faculty and staff safe. And we had concluded that the best way to do that was by having essentially all instruction initially be online. That announcement came out the day before the government made its announcement. So it actually felt like it was aimed directly at us. It would have required every international student basically to go home. Um, they would have been in this country illegally based upon the announcement that was made by ICE. And moreover, if they failed to honor it, they risked not being allowed back into this country in the future to continue their studies. So it was extraordinarily disruptive to our students. I began receiving uh, emails from foreign students and candidly, Initially, they were sort of overwhelmed by the emails I was receiving from other students as well as people wanted to know more about our plans for the fall. As I sort of got out from underneath some of the other messages, I started to focus on the challenges that our international students faced. And there was one email in particular that I got from an international student who had attempted to board a flight to come to the United States and had been turned away at the airport in part because of this ICE directive already. And so it became very, very clear that this was going to be unbelievably disruptive, not just to our students, but essentially to the million international students who study in the United States every year. Felicia, let me turn to you for a moment. When the government makes an abrupt policy reversal like this, what's your first reaction or even your second reaction as a lawyer? This one in particular, I think, screamed out to everybody, myself included, as a classic violation of uh, the Administrative Procedures Act. And so immediately, much like President Bacow, I was hearing from our community partners, uh, those we provide pro bono support to, and, and in the immigration community about the devastating impact that this directive was having already on the international students, many of whom were already in the country and trying to determine if they needed to leave or or trying to figure out how they could get back in, having made plans, et cetera. So what immediately came to mind was first the just tragic and, and unnecessary kind of personal devastation that this was wreaking on people. And then second, what a wrong-headed uh, you know, legal decision this was on, on the part of the government and how susceptible to a challenge it was. And this is before we'd even heard that Harvard was interested in mounting such a challenge. Everybody knew that this policy was ripe for challenge. So Larry, the administration issues this directive on the 6th. At 6 a.m. the next morning, you contacted us about whether Harvard could challenge the ICE directive in court. What led you and your colleagues at Harvard to decide to take this step? 
I went to sleep at night thinking about this issue. I wake up very early every morning when I got up. First thing I do always is to check my email. I saw I had a bunch of additional emails from international students. As you probably know, Seth, I'm trained as both a lawyer and an economist. I never practiced law, but I did remember at least a little bit of civil procedure. And this struck me as, first of all, illegal, as Felicia has already said, under the Administrative Procedure Act. Now, I'm not a scholar of the APA, but uh, the DACA decision had just come down not too much earlier. And the decision there rested at least in part upon detrimental reliance upon the government's prior acts. And in this particular case, we had a similar fact situation here. Not only that, but it was clear that if this did not get reversed and get reversed quickly, we were going to suffer irreparable harm. So it seemed to me that there was at least an opportunity here to go for a temporary restraining order. I actually did not technically contact the firm. I contacted the senior fellow of the Harvard Corporation, who, as you know, Seth is your partner, Bill Lee. I sent an email, in fact, to Bill Lee, to John Manning, the dean of the law school, and to Diane Lopez, who was our general counsel. And I said, I was concerned about this. I was thinking that we should see whether or not we could seek a temporary restraining order. I wanted to check my legal thinking against theirs. They are all real lawyers. I am not. And I said, get back to me as soon as you get this message. Within about 10 minutes, I had already heard from, I think, Bill and John. And I said, now that you're awake, I said, call me because I want to move very, very quickly on this. And by 6.15, I think I had John, Bill, and Diane all on the phone. Everybody quickly concurred that we had a very, very strong legal case. And I said, let's move forward. And I wanted to move forward as quickly as we could possibly do it. And in fact, at that point, I had hoped that we could file by that evening. So as it happens, your senior fellow and our partner essentially pressed the forward button immediately. And for better or for worse, Felicia and I and others at the firm are also early risers. And I think it's fair to say that by 6.20, we were already talking about the merits of it, how we were going to staff it up. And definitely by 8 o'clock, we understood that the university had decided to bring suit. Shortly thereafter, MIT joined the effort. And then a mere 23 hours later, in an all-hands-on-deck effort, we sprinted to file a 93-paragraph complaint, temporary restraining order, supporting declarations in the District of Massachusetts at 7 a.m. the following morning. Felicia, can you just go through and explain why we decided to file so quickly? The reasons were pretty obvious and they jumped out at us. Larry actually wanted us to file that same day. We needed every minute of those 23 hours that we took, though, to, to pull together uh, what, what Seth has just described. So the, the first and most obvious reason why we felt it was important, um, all of us, you know, the clients and those of us at the firm, to file quickly was because, of course, this really was having an irreparable harm on the students and on the universities. A lot of plans had been put in place, and, and, and Larry described some of the careful and thoughtful planning that had gone into Harvard's own reopening plans, but every other university and institution of higher education around the country had been doing the same. Many had announced their plans, but some had not. And so to have this monkey wrench thrown into things in, in the middle of July when, when schools were just weeks away from opening was, you know, we really needed quick action, you know, in addition to the individual students who were being so devastatingly impacted by this. The, the other thing to remember is this directive 
It was issued on July 6th, and it had a July 15th deadline by which the universities had to provide a so-called certification about whether they were going to be all remote or not. So there was a date baked into this and a decision point for universities about whether they would change previously announced plans or whether they could try and put together a plan that would allow them to keep some of their international students either in the country or have them be able to, to re-enter. So it was clear that we needed to get this on file as soon as, as humanly possible. And, and I think the 23 hours was just about as soon as humanly possible in this case. Tell us about those 23 hours and how the team managed to pull this off. As soon as we sort of learned that Harvard wanted to challenge this and that MIT would be joining, we pulled together a team, many of whom were, were veterans of our Harvard admissions case as well, where we were privileged to represent the university successfully in, in the challenge to its undergraduate admissions practices. We had people who were experts in administrative law, experts in immigration law, as well as just general litigators who could put together a complaint. And we split the team essentially into two groups. One was focusing on the law and what were the legal challenges we would would bring what our Administrative Procedure Act complaint would look like, sort of the strength of those challenges and, and what we needed to support them. And then the other half of the team focused on the factual development. We immediately hopped on a day-long and night-long series of Zoom calls with administrators at Harvard and MIT and some students that we had been put in touch with, current students of both institutions, to pull together declarations and factual support for the irreparable harm that would be suffered by both the universities, uh, the institutions, and the students if this policy wasn't immediately taken off the books. And what were the arguments we made in the complaint? We've mentioned the Administrative Procedures Act several times, and essentially the, the primary argument was this was an arbitrary and capricious decision, that it wasn't well-reasoned, it wasn't backed by the type of process that one is expected to have for a monumental policy change of this time. We were also, as a sort of subset of that argument, we were aided by something Larry mentioned earlier, which is the universities and the students had really been relying on the policy that had been essentially relaxed in March, allowing international students to pursue a remote course of study in a way that typically they weren't allowed to under the ICE rules. So in reliance on that policy, which was issued at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, of course, the, the pandemic was, was still raging in July and, and is still raging as we record this. So people had made plans, institutions had made plans on the way in which they would reopen, um, having an understanding on how that would impact or not impact their international students. And the students, of course, had made plans about whether they were going to return to the country if they'd been able to leave, about where they were going to live. We had people who had signed leases that they were going to have to break if they were going to be forced to leave the country. So the reliance interests were really quite real here and a, a big part of the legal arguments that we put together in the complaint and the request for a TRO. Larry, tell us about how and when MIT joined. Well, so when I talked to Seth and Diane and John early in the morning, one of the things which I said was that I thought that strategically it would be helpful if we did not go this one alone, that if we had another institution in there with us. And I volunteered to contact my counterpart at MIT, Raphael Reif. As you probably know, I spent 24 years on the faculty at MIT. I've known Raphael forever, and I know the place well. And so it was an easy phone call to make. I thought the power of having two institutions of the stature of Harvard and MIT together made sense. It also helped that MIT had essentially adopted the same program that we had for the fall. And that is that they had invited approximately the same number of students back to their campus, just one class as we did, uh, plus international students and those who could not study from home. And similarly, they had elected to have all of their teaching remote. And so the factual situation was 
close to identical to ours. I knew I could get Raphael on the phone very, very quickly. And I thought that the optics of having Harvard and MIT together was quite powerful. It uh, turns out Raphael was about to start an MIT corporation meeting. He said, if you're in this, we're in this. I explained to him that we were going to move quickly and that ideally I wanted to file by the end of the day if we could. I explained to him that they would have to trust us basically to oversee the litigation from the client's perspective. We would obviously need people from the MIT side to make the same kinds of declarations that our people were making, but that there wasn't going to be a lot of time to have two different groups reviewing everything and that he had to trust us in this case, which, which he did. He said, give me 15 minutes and I'll call you back. And 15 minutes later, he called me back and said, we're in. Did you hear from other universities? Did you consider you know, also involving other universities as plaintiffs? Candidly, I did not consider involving anybody else. I thought that it was enough to have two. And I think my recollection is that Diane, John, and Bill concurred in this immediately after we filed. And I gave a heads up to a couple people that we were going to. There were certainly offers for other institutions that were interested in being co-plaintiffs. But at that point, you know, we were off and running and did not want to slow things down. And there were plenty of opportunities for people to support us by joining amicus briefs, which, as you know, many universities did. And I was also pleased that we were joined by, I believe, 23 state attorneys general, by the mayors of a number of cities that hosted major institutions and that would feel the economic effect of a loss of international students. And then also widespread support from industry as well, which recognized the importance of international students to the U.S. academic enterprise, but also to the U.S. long-term economic interests. And most pleasantly, the support of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which was not known necessarily for supporting the kinds of issues that universities typically litigate. I can say, I guess, two things on behalf of your legal team. Number one, the fact that MIT's program, although very similar to Harvard's, was actually different in some respects, helped us to present a more complete picture to the federal court about the impacts that this would have. But it is also true that if you had suggested adding even more universities as complainants, your crack 23-hour team probably would have cracked. Um, So, Felicia, we drew a judge not just any judge, but as it happens, under the luck of the draw, the same judge that presided over the admissions case. We had a bunch of early status conferences, but the oral arguments were scheduled very promptly for July 14th. Tell us what you heard from the other side as the litigation progressed and the the oral argument day approached and what happened. As Larry mentioned, you know, we had this outpouring of support from all around every corner, supporting us in our litigation, which was the first filed and was moving very quickly. But remember also that there was probably eight to 10 other independent litigations that were started in the time between we filed our complaint and the oral argument was scheduled for July 14th. So the federal government was being hit on all sides with this policy change, and I think was quickly thinking about what it could do to get itself out of this mess. So we'd had a number of of status conferences, as you mentioned, and a number of offline conversations with the federal government about the timing of briefing and some of those more logistical matters. But they'd also expressed an interest in figuring out if there was something that Harvard and MIT would be satisfied with that would sort of moot the litigation or at least cause things to slow down a little bit. 
So we'd had those conversations and essentially every time our response was after conferring with the client, you know, the, the only satisfaction here is to undo this policy, right? That's the only, we can't think of anything else that would solve this problem. And as we were sitting there preparing for what would be a Zoom argument in front of the federal district court in Massachusetts, we got a phone call. I think it was about 27 minutes before the argument was scheduled to begin from our primary contact who indicated, you know, essentially, here's what we're willing to do. And while it was termed as a settlement proposal, what the government indicated it was willing to do was exactly the relief that we had sought, which was to completely pull down the policy and revert back to the position that ICE had taken and the administration had taken in March, which remains the law of the land today, which allows international students to remain in the country, even if they're not pursuing or even if they are pursuing a full remote course of study. So we got that phone call. We quickly convened the clients to say, you know, complete capitulation, um, which seems to be, you know, the, the result we wanted. And we quickly spoke to the, the judge before the public hearing began to inform her so she wasn't sort of blindsided by the fact that this argument that she had spent the whole weekend preparing for and was ready to, to hear and potentially, you know, rule on the bench, if not very quickly, because remember that July 15th date was, was looming and still in place. Essentially, the position the government was taking was going to allow her to uh, save whatever she had written, whichever way it came down, uh, put it in a file and, and never let it see the light of day. So we informed the judge and then we all got on the record for a Zoom conference that if memory serves, I think there were 998 attendees or something. You could count how many people were trying to log on. There was just this immense public interest in this particular hearing, at which the judge announced that the government had agreed that it would be reverting to the March policy and that she was not going to hold the hearing on the preliminary injunction or TRO. And I think after four minutes on the record, we concluded the hearing. So, Larry, can you just reflect a little bit about how this successful challenge has affected higher education institutions across the United States? First, everybody breathed a big sigh of relief that we could go forward with our planning for the fall as we had all imagined, and that our international students would not have their lives turned upside down. I also think that the higher education community felt good about how we collectively had all come together to try and do the right thing. And it was a victory over an administration which candidly, I think, had tried to politicize higher education for partisan advantage in ways that not only did harm to institutions, but even more than that, did harm to the, to the students who were just trying to do their best to better their own lives by studying here. And so there was relief, there was a sense of satisfaction, and there was also a recognition that it was really important, I think, collectively for all of us to stand up for what we thought was right. And I can also tell you on the Harvard campus that we were all incredibly grateful for the legal representation that we had uh, in this case, that we were able to do things as quickly as we did, in large part because we were able to activate the same legal team that has represented us so well in the admissions litigation. What do you think this case and this decision means for us as a country and as a people? Oh, hard to tell. One of the reasons why historians try not to write history immediately is because there's benefit uh, from having some distance from the immediacy of the, of the circumstances. You know, I would hope that this would signal that the doors to this country will remain open to foreign students and foreign scholars going forward. I would hope that any future administration that sought to try and close those doors would understand that this is something which the higher education community is going to fight to protect. And I would hope that the 
higher education community itself would recognize that there's much that we can accomplish when we all work together and in collaboration with other institutions in our society that both understand and appreciate what the opportunity to get a great education can mean to so many. Uh, That would include business, government at all levels, and private citizens who I think understand that colleges and universities have much to contribute to this country. Let me just also note that as we try to find our way out of this thicket that's represented by the pandemic, that what is likely to ultimately rescue us, the vaccines that are being produced, are in many cases being produced by those who came to this country from other places to study at the great research universities that exist in the U.S. You know, the first vaccine approved for distribution in the United States, or one of the first, the Moderna vaccine, comes out of one of our laboratories at Harvard. And in fact, Moderna itself is led by immigrants and people who came here to study. So I think there's a lesson there for all of us as well. Larry and Felicia, thank you so much for spending some time to share this inspiring story and helping define who we are as a country. Thank you. Thank you very much. And again, my thanks to both of you for representing us in this important piece of litigation. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you, Larry and Felicia. And thank you, Seth, for moderating. This is just a remarkable story and a victory shared by so many students and their families to say nothing of the rule of law. And that's it for another episode of In the Public Interest. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time.